Living out the adventure, huh? And it is an adventure. I wanted to begin by sharing, uh, not a personal testimony, maybe it is, but uh, an adventure that our family has been living. About uh, six, seven years ago, my daughter married Nate, and it is a marriage made in heaven. I mean, that's not the issue. I mean, it, 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 the honeymoon keeps going after, after almost seven years. It's, it, he compliments her. She compliments him. It's really a neat, neat home. The issue came into play. They weren't able to conceive, and there's a point in time when all couples want to be a family. And so they went the obvious route. They wanted to begin adoption. That's tricky. You think, well, okay, give us a baby. Uh, it's, it's, it's a zoo. And after some time, a little African-American girl, Anaya, was in our home, in their home. And uh, she was going to be our granddaughter. And the, even though they're in their home and the process kind of gets serious, there's a lot of steps and a lot of, a lot of landmines that they were being guided through. And it, it, it got so close. I mean, there's the nursery, the girl, little girl clothes and the whole world. I, I have a, a very good friend who's a professor at VU who, has a, who years ago adopted an African-American boy who is now a junior high kid. So he's had him in his home forever. So I, I, I went to, to Heath. I said, Heath, what are we forgetting? Is there anything that we, we should know about a, a multicultural, multiracial family? He said, yeah. He said, the best thing we ever did, we have good friends of ours who are African-American who asked them if they would be our son's aunt and uncle. So his whole world isn't white people. So we can identify with somebody. So I, I told Julia this, and she said, I love that idea. Now, they go to, they go to College Park Church in Indianapolis, which is like 5,000. And they're, they're incredibly involved in the arts department. Nate's a drummer. Uh, Julia's on the production team. They're, they're, they're life group leaders. Uh, the pastor meets with a group of young, young guys about once a quarter to talk about his sermons. Nate's in that group. So they're, they're incredibly involved. So they know a lot, of, a lot of people in the choir and such who are African-American couples. They invited them over, and they said, yes, we're honored. We're going to be Anaya's aunt and uncle. So we're, we're, really, we're really well, well down this process about four years ago. The upshot, the birth mother's aunt said, it is a mistake to have a white family raise your baby. She's always going to be on the outs, which wasn't true. And convinced her, you need to get that baby out of that home. And so DCS, Department of Child Services, contacted Julie and Nate and said, we have to come for Anaya. And so Tammy and I went down. And I, I got to tell you, it's not different from a death. There is an empty crib. There is diapers. There is clothes and memories. And she's gone. And of all the days that Tammy and I spent with any of our kids, that was the worst day because we went down and just let them cry. Well, their pastor at College Park said, this is going to be the year of prayer. And we're, we're, going, to, we're going to demonstrate God's action in our lives. He had really a cool idea. In their foyer, they have a white door and, and a green door. He said, if you're praying about something in your home, there are stickers, put it on the white door. But when that prayer is answered, we're going to move that over to the green door, and we're going to have green door testimonies. We're going to fill that green door, being reminded that God answers prayer. Cool idea. Well, Julie and Nate put adoption. Another family in the church put on the door, we're foster parents, and we have a little boy who's due to be adopted. We're praying that he ends up in a Christian home. Well, one of the staff members are reading all the things on the white door and went, these two people got to know each other. And the couple that's foster parents are the Bennetts. They didn't know Julie and Nate. Julie and Nate didn't know them. It's a church of 5,000. They get them together, and I'm going to make a long story short. 
the little boy that was due to be adopted, his name is uh, Theodore, Theo. And Theo now comes into Julie and Nate's home. As, and, and the Bennett's tell them that the best way to adopt, really, in, 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 in Indiana, go through the, the foster parent. So they, became, they went through all the schooling, all the stuff to become foster parents with a goal of getting Theo in their home as their, as their boy. And uh, it has been an incredibly long and wild journey. But Friday, the court of Indiana, the gavel went down, Theo is my grandson. You're saying, Gene, I'm shocked you didn't bring a picture. Put that, bad, put that big boy up. There better be some ooing and aahing in this place. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm taking names. Now, the story continues. The birth mom uh, contacted Julie. Now, she cannot call Julie. She, she, she does not know where Julie and Nate live. All that stuff is very private. They had to go through DCS. It's a long story, but I, I'm condensing it. Was able to get to Julie, and she says, I, we have to talk, and Julie's heart went, because she lost Anaya, because you hear at any time, she could have lost Theo. Not anymore, but back then, she said, we have to talk. And so Julie is absolutely in tears, in terror. Could this happen again? And the birth mom said, I am pregnant. And it's not multiple men. It, it, she's married. It's her husband. So the pregnancy is Theo's full brother. It's a little boy. And uh, she said, DCS will take this baby. Their, their home situation is so dysfunctional, we're not going to get into it here. But she was wise enough to realize the minute this baby's born, I'm going to lose him to DCS. Would you consider adopting this baby so Theo will have his full brother? Now, somebody said in the church, it's wise, that the council said, you know, you're getting complicated. You're adopting a one-and-a-half-year-old boy, and now you're trying to, to take a baby. Even though the mother signs, when that baby's born, there's ways that you can take that baby home right now. You need a lawyer to kind of navigate through this. And there are, there are adoption attorneys that, that can navigate you through this. Now, let me go back just for one second. When they were planning to adopt, I don't know if you know this, but it, it's a fortune. It's, it's crazy. That one of the things they wanted to do last spring was have a garage sale to raise money for the adoption. So at the arts department of their church, people brought stuff like you can't believe. I called it Walmart on the lawn. <laughs> and... People begin to tell them, this is gigantic. You're going to get eight, nine, ten thousand dollars 10000 Well, they got $3,100. They were pleased. And I told them, hey, it's 3100 bucks they didn't have yesterday. I was side of the coin, maybe they set the goal kind of high. But they had $3,100 in the kitty ready to go. They met the attorney to guide them through adopting a baby right at the hospital and, and, and all of this. And Nate said, what is the cost? He said, $3,100. Nineteen days ago, Benjamin was born, my second grandson. Gene, do you have a picture? Are you kidding? That's the one I, I want around here. So, Gene, are you in a good mood? Back up today, baby. I, I just have one more picture. There, there, there's a little bit of German heritage in, in, our, in our, our line. And in Germany, uh, a, uh, a grandma is not a grandmother, it's Oma. 
and uh, I'm Papa. And I thought you'd want to, as soon as the baby was born, Tammy went down. And you say, no, you know, girls want their moms, but usually it's, it's they're exhausted from labor and all that until you didn't have that. But Tammy went down and said, you need to bond with this baby. She needs to sense you, smell you, know your voice. So Tammy went down and said, I'm going to take care of everything else. I'm doing the laundry. I'm doing the cleaning. You're free for a week just to be with this baby. <laughs> Tell Tammy. All Tammy did was hold the baby. But I, I, I love this one picture. I, I thought I want to bring one more. Is this not a happy Oma? Take a look at my wife. So I am in a really good mood. Last week, we're, we helped, because of the Anaya situation, we lost her in the bottom of the ninth. Last Sunday when I preached here, the back of my mind was, oh Lord, we got five days to go to the court. Don't let anything collapse. This week, I got two grandchildren. Now, the upshot of all of this for us is uh, here we are. We're, we're looking for the right person to lead this church for the next decade or so. I, I've just been reminded. You know, we love to say uh, God is good and we kind of ro robot all the time. I've been reminded how good he is. We have two grandchildren because my daughter put a sticker on a door. And God answered prayer. We wanted a, a child. We have two. And he met our financial needs around it. He really is good. I really do believe what Dr. Bartley had said. He is already working somewhere on somebody who's designed for real life church. Because I've just been living this adventure of adoption with my kids. He is really good all the time. Father, I, I am just... Uh, I am just praising you. I'm, I, I've had one of the great weeks of my life. And it was so thrilling to watch uh, my kids become a family. And it's emotionally exhausting, but it is thrilling. Because my daughter put a sticker on a door. And you have answered prayer. Remind us over and over how good you really are. In your holy name, amen. I've got the Rockwell classic around the table photo because obviously we're going to be talking about family today. I can't imagine why. Uh, and family happens around the table. Family happens at home, around, around the living room. And, and it's all that teaching. And as we're getting in, into Thanksgiving and what we're thankful for, I, I am so thankful for my heritage. And I, I, I did that thing. You know, it became fashionable to find out your genealogy, where, you, where you're from and all that. I, I began to wonder a little bit about my spiritual genealogy, my spiritual roots. Am, am I a Christian? I had to make the choice myself, I get that. But am I a Christian fundamentally because it was the culture of my home, because my parents were followers of Christ? And, and Scripture talks about this incredible parental influence, Proverbs 22.6. Train a child how to live right, and when they are old, they will not change. It just doesn't, they can't shake that training. Am, am I a follower of Christ because the culture, culture is the way we do things around here. The culture of my home was so Christ-oriented, was it very natural for me to become a Christian? And then it raises the question, like on my mother's side, is she a Christian because my grandparents were Christians and it was the culture of where she was raised in. And my grandparents, my great-grandparents, how, how, how did we, how did this, this 
philosophy and how did this training and how did this culture of, of Christ come into our family? Because one thing we understand, psychologists call, call it grandparents raising their children second person. Let me explain that. The way that I raised my kids was the way my parents raised me. They're my guides. They're the example. Everything my parents did that I agreed with, I did raising my kids. Everything they did that I didn't think was that wise, I didn't do. So fundamentally, who's raising my children? My parents. So they call it raising your uh, grandparents or raising their children second person. There's a lot of truth in that. And there's real responsibility. So the way I raised my kids, I'm watching them raise their kids. And it's fascinating because I realize it's my influence. There's two generations of influence, and now we come to find out there's two generations of spiritual influence. Really? Yeah, 2 Timothy 1.5. I remember your true faith. That, faith. that faith lived in your grandmother Lois, your mother Eunice. I know you have that same faith. So there is this grandparental responsibility. If you're a grandparent, you have some spiritual responsibility for your grandchildren. Now, your great-grandchildren, it, it, it kind of breaks down. But for two generations, there's real legitimate responsibility. And so I, I began to wonder... Who is it that came to Christ in my family, uh, particularly on my mother's side? It was my grandparents. They began the tradition or the culture of, of a spiritual life in the home. My grandfather and my grandmother, Roy Quanstrom and Isabella, if they had anything in common as children, they were not raised in Christian homes at all. Both of their fathers were alcoholics. In the turn of the century, they, they would go to the bar and they have a long pole and like, like paint buckets. And, and you can carry the paint home in, in these paint buckets on this pole. Isabella's job was to get the beer for her daddy. Roy had it much tougher. His dad was an alcoholic, but he was a mean alcoholic. Which meant when, when, he, when, he, when he would come home, he would be mean and he would beat my grandfather. And his wife, my great-grandmother, his wife sacrificed him. She would hide him, and when he couldn't find his son, Roy, he beat her instead. How Roy and Isabella meet is not important to the spiritual life, because at this time, they've never been in church. They know nothing about Christ. They have three children, Walter, my uncle, Robert, my uncle, my Marjorie, my mother. At this time, they still know nothing. They live in Gary, Indiana. And my grandfather rose through the ranks of American Bridge. He became a general superintendent in the American Bridge Corporation. And his personality, he was a goer. He was all energy. I don't know where I get it from. He was bang, 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 bang. When he came home from work, he wanted to go and do something. Isabella was the 180 degrees opposite. She was a homebody. And for them to go out and do something, when she has children, she thinks it's an affront to motherhood. Why in the world would he get somebody to watch our kids? So she didn't like to go out and do things. Roy is probably coming home and wants to, he, he's thinking, what can we do? What can we do different? By coincidence, on his way home, he goes in front of a church, First Church of the Nazarene in Gary, Indiana. And out front, there's a banner that says, Revival, tonight. And Roy's thinking, never done that. Could be a kick. So he goes back and tells Isabella, let's go to Revival. They might as well be talking about going to a foreign country. She had no interest. I don't know if there was an argument. I don't know what the deal is. But for some reason, Roy and Isabella, because he wanted to go have somebody. And my mother, Marjorie, was born in 1924, the fall of 24. This is the spring of 1925 
when Roy says, let's go to church. So she has a six-month-old baby. That's even wilder. That Marjorie, we leave Marjorie at home, and I'm going to go to church? Roy wins out. And so for that reason, because Roy wants to go and do something, they go to a Nazarene church. They walk in. The, the, the music starts. Roy's having a great time. He's singing. He's loving it. Isabella is a little bit angry. This is the dumbest thing we've ever done. I bet Marjorie is crying for me by now. She's really unhappy. The preacher begins to preach. He begins to explain Jesus. He begins to explain sin. He begins to explain being lost. He begins to explain being spiritually alone. Roy is hearing every word. Isabella hears nothing. Now comes the time, he says, if you want to bring Christ into your life, there's an altar in the front. We're going to sing a song. If you want to come down to this altar and bring Jesus into your life, I invite you. Roy's heart was just beating. You know what that feels like. He realizes God is talking to me. And the Holy Spirit was being faithful. He realized we need to go down to that altar and bring Jesus into our life. This has turned into more than just a kick for something to do. This is, this is, this is real. Isabella is not under conviction at all. She hadn't heard a thing. So Roy leans over to her and says, we got to go. He means we got to go to the altar. Isabella thinks he means, crying out loud, we got to go home. This is nuts. So Isabella says, yes, I'll follow you. <laughs> Don't get ahead of me, boys and girls. You didn't ooh and ah very much in the first picture, so you, you, you got to make it right with me still. So Isabella says, I'll follow you. True. So out they step in, in the aisle at Gary First Church of Nazarene. And yeah, Roy, Isabella, <laughs> Roy reached back and grabbed her by the elbow and took my grandmother to the altar. Roy Quanstrom hit the altar. He says, God in heaven, you have talked to me. I've sinned against you. I never realized how lost I was. Forgive me. I want to begin this adventure with you. He's, he's praying through. Isabella, clueless. And sure enough, men come down, pray around my grandfather at the end. Women come down, pray around my grandmother at the end. Isabella is just totally lost. They go home. Now, the Lord had spoken to a woman at the church that must have had real discernment. Her name was Mrs. Broadbent. And she saw this little Swedish girl named Isabella who didn't know a thing. And she sensed, this girl's, this girl's confused. She found out who she was, got the address, and went to her house the next day. Knocked on the door. My grandmother answered, and Mrs. Broadbent said, I know, I'm from that Gary First Church of the Nazarene, and I, I know last night was confusing to you do you have a few minutes? Could I just tell you what happened? Now, Isabella, there's this lady at her door, invites her in. They sit on the couch, and Mrs. Broadbent begins to explain Jesus to my grandmother. And piece by piece, the Holy Spirit begins to come into that place. And all of a sudden, my, my grandmother, who focused on her kids exclusively, began to focus on Jesus. And Mrs. Broadbent led my grandmother in the comfort of her own home to Christ at her couch that morning. Eventually, two more children are going to come. Martha, my aunt, and Roy, my uncle. Five kids. With, and they're going to give these kids back. I mean, now we have Isabella, the mother's mother. Now we have the spiritual mother's mother. And Roy being Roy, if there's something going on at Gary First Church of Nazarene, the Quanstrom Row is there. And not always easy. There's always one, you know? There's, there's, always, there's always one that's going to rebel. Robert, the second one, was just not going to have anything to do with his churchy Jesus stuff. 
Revival came, now I'm moving up more than a decade. And it wasn't manipulation because the evangelists believed they were telling the truth. They just were misguided. During the early 1940s, the dominant theme of revivals was it's the end of the world. Because they took what was happening culturally and newspapers and married them. Now go back to the 1940s. We have a Adolf Hitler who's conquering the world piece by piece, seeming, seemingly unstoppable. He is persecuting Jewish people. Well, part, part of Scripture talks about the Antichrist who will dominate the world, particularly strong against God's chosen. And as they began, these evangelists were beginning to tell the story about the end of the world. It was very common in revivals back then. And people were scared to death that the end of the world was going to be now. And then they would go in at the point of time when Jesus says, enough, he will come out of the eastern sky and the rapture and the church will disappear. And those left on earth will have to face the wrath of Adolf Hitler, the Antichrist, and receive a mark. And you will not be able to buy any food, not be able to, to eat. And, and they would just terrify people. Now, I feel like I need to pull back. You know, the Bible is a true story. It's the story of God. It begins with the beginning of the world and it ends with the end of the world. There is a rapture. There is an end time. So I, I, don't, I don't make light of it. But back then they were almost not manipulating because they believed it was true, but they were terrifying people. Now, put yourself in Isabella's shoes. She's hearing about the rapture, like next Tuesday. She's hearing that they won't be able to get food. And down the aisle, there's Robert, who doesn't want anything to do with Christ. Isabella, the mother's mother, is panicked. My grandfather, Roy, comes home from work, and she says, I want this week's paycheck. He gave it to her. She spent the entire paycheck on non-perishable foods. She took it down in the cellar. Robert came home, and she said, Robert, follow me. He's never called Bob. Robert, follow me. She took him down in the cellar and said, you heard the sermon. If you come home and we're all gone, that means the rapture's happened and you didn't get taken. You don't take Adolf Hitler's mark. Here's all the food you need. You come down here and live. But what I want you to do, you call Reverend Slack. If he doesn't answer the phone, that means we're all gone. Now, how my grandmother thought the pastor's job was to sit by the phone? <laughs> you know, I don't know. But he was supposed to call Reverend Slack. That means we're all gone. It was that revival that Robert came to Christ. Why don't we confront our kids? You know, if they need braces, we're going to take care of it. That's good. We're parents. If their grades are going south, we have a conversation. We could. We should. We're parents. But we don't really talk to them much about Christ. Isabella was a mother's mother who knew Christ. It's interesting. 1925 was our year. 1925, Roy took my grandmother down to the altar. 1925, Mrs. Broadbent came to the house. The Quantum culture, the Quantum line began in 1925. And it's fascinating to kind of consider... So what happened to this line? Well, my uncle, the oldest, he's gone on to heaven. His name was Walter. Raised a Christian, married a Christian woman, raised a Christian family. Number two was Robert. He's gone on to heaven. You remember Robert. He was not going to have anything. He, it, took a pay, it took a paycheck of, of non-perishables to get this guy to come to Christ. Robert's gone on to heaven, but not after serving 50 years as a pastor in the Church of the Nazarene. Pretty good paycheck. Marjorie, my mother, married a Christian man, raised a Christian family. Martha, my aunt, married a, here we go, married a Christian man, raised a Christian family. Martha and her husband Floyd have been fascinated by missions and have given their life 
uh, in, in South, South America and Africa in missions. Roy, my uncle, pastors, he's still alive. Ma Ma Martha's still alive. He's, he pastored, he was a director of development of Olivet Nazarene University, still in his 80s on staff at Olivet Nazarene University. All five kids, the culture, the dominoes. I never knew Isabella. She died before I was born. But as I researched this with, with my mom and, uh, and my aunts and uncles quite a few years ago, they said at her funeral, she wanted one song saying, nothing between me and my Savior. What a testimony. I was eight years old when my grandfather died. He was an incredible influence in my life. He was a, he was a goer until the day he died. All energy, all fun. And I, I didn't understand death. All I knew, everybody was at Methodist Hospital downtown, and, and I was in the waiting room forever, and different parents went in, in teams to be with him. Oddly enough, my mom and Robert, remember Robert, were in the room when he came out of a coma for a short time. And he looked up and said, Robert, well, he, he was conscious. He said, I see it. It pays to serve Jesus. And the next day it was gone. Now, I could be wrong. I don't know, man. I don't know. But in my, in my romantic imagination, I can't help but wonder, could it be that Christ pulled back the curtain for a second and said, Roy, take a look. Here's eternity. Because remember, it was Roy. Had Isabella had her way, none of us would have known Christ. The culture would have changed dramatically in our entire line. It was Roy who went to the altar. Why would he say, I see it? It pays to serve Jesus. I, I don't know what he meant. But in my romantic, I, I kind of wonder, could he have had a chance to just see it? Now remember, psychologists have finally caught up the Bible. There's two generations of direct influence. So Roy and Isabella have their children, but they have direct influence on their grandchildren. There are 16 of us. I'm not going to mention them all individually. But there are pastors, missions, all 16 are serving the Lord. My one cousin, Mark, wrote, working on his PhD, probably wrote the definitive work on holiness as a professor at Olivet and now is the dean of the School of Theology of Olivet Nazarene University. All began in 1925. I, one time I had this weird thought. You know, Valpo, Valpo, 1,400, 1,500 people. And it's not the same 1,400, 1,500 people. But then I was in Virginia Beach. That grew to be about 500. And, and, then, and then Doylestown. And I thought about all the people that I, I wonder how many I've influenced. Have, have I influenced for Christ 2,500 people? And then I began to think about all my cousins. And my uncles, who'd pastored for years, could it be, I'm not bragging, but, but could it, is it possible, the Quanstrom line through pastorals, through missions, have we influenced 10,000 people for Christ? And I wonder, in that revival in 1925, when Roy went this way and Isabel went that way, back then, revivals were headcounts. How many people came to the altar? They were headcounts. Head I thought, well, would it be interesting if they had that revival? And nobody went to the altar except Roy and Isabella. There'd be a board member say, you know something? You know what we paid for this revival? And all we got were those two Swedish kids. For the cost of this revival, he didn't know standing behind them was 10,000 people that their influence would touch from then on. That's the family. No wonder Satan attacks the family. No wonder this is ground zero for the war. It's the family. Because a spiritual home is not a spiritual home. It is a spiritual home with potential. 
It's amazing who's going to guess where your kids are going to end up. Who's going to guess where your grandchildren are going to end up. It is a potential. No wonder God has designed the family. I want to end with this because you're saying, you know, Gene, this is, this is a nice story. Roy went this way. Isabella went this way. It's entertaining. But you've done nothing for me. I'm glad, I'm glad you've got a great heritage. Praise God. I'm thrilled for you. But I'm me. And I'm going to work tomorrow. Your story doesn't affect my life. And I want to come here and have something that affects my life. And while I like your tale, it's nothing to me. You got a point. But I told you only to ask two questions that are directly for you. The first one, if my parents were serving Christ and I'm not, what am I robbing God in the future? Sometimes Satan can make us think, it's only me. No, it's not. It's your home. It's your kids. It's your, it's your grandchildren. There is a cultural line going on. If my folks came to Christ and I am not what am I robbing God down the line? The second question, 1925 was the year the quantum line changed on one decision. If you have not, and your parents had not served Christ, could 2019 be your year? You cannot imagine the long-range potential of a family line. Let's stand together. Father, family is obviously on my heart and my mind. But right now I want to pray for parents, but I want to pray first for single parents. The truth is they're outnumbered all the time. Even if they only have one child, they're outnumbered. I pray for single parents. I thank you that they're here because that was work to get here. Parenting is exhausting. Just spending a few days... With, with a one-and-a-half-year-old one and a, a brand-new baby, I'm reminded. I'd forgotten. It's work. I pray for single parents. I thank you for them. But I pray for our homes, for moms and dads. May there be a passion, for you are so good to us. You meet needs. You touch hearts and lives. Give us a passion of Christ that our kids see as they are eyewitnesses to our life. That they desire that same kind of passion. No, we cannot make decisions for our kids. And yes, there are prodigals out there. But may we be in a home that the culture is so right that it's almost natural for them to want Christ in their life because they see the beauty of it in their parents. Father, I pray for our homes. It's no wonder that Satan has said, this therefore shall be my battleground. I will redefine the home. I will damage the home. I will make as many homes dysfunctional and hurt as I possibly can because a spiritual home is dangerous and powerful and impacting and changes the entire world. I pray for our homes, for your presence. And Father, I pray for that one that your Holy Spirit is speaking to you just like it did my grandfather. Somehow our heart beats fast. Somehow something happens almost in our emotions and we realize God is talking to me. My parents served Christ and I don't. God, don't allow me to have this much damage. 
and that person is saying, my parents didn't serve Christ, can I begin something and a spiritual adventure in my life and my home? I pray for that person that you are speaking to today. In the holy name of Jesus. We love to send you out with scripture together. Obviously, Proverbs 22, 6. We'll say it together. Train a child how to live right, and when they are old, they will not change. Let's go, let's go again. Come on. Train a child how to live right, and when they are old, they will not change. That's powerful. Thank you for worshiping with us today. God bless you.